Let me say a couple things before I start. Uh, Tim and Lisa, would you stand up? Tim and Lisa Billings were married yesterday. I like, I like to see people get married on Saturday and be here on Sunday. That's pretty good. Uh, also, I wanted to say that uh, be sure and take advantage next Saturday of Joe White being here in town. Joe White spoke here at the chapel probably close to 20 years ago. And uh, he is a man who has greatly been used by God. And, and don't miss the opportunity to go next door and hear him next Saturday because you will be impacted by his message. Uh, let me also say on behalf of my family, I appreciate your concern for Dad. Uh, please do not be discouraged by this. If, if this is the Lord calling him home, he has finished the race. Uh, and uh, we are, in fact, I'm, I'm jealous. Uh, he has finished strong. And uh, so don't treat him any differently. Uh, if you have gone to lunch with him, ask him to go to lunch. Uh, but but don't look at this as a discouraging thing, and please do not be discouraged. This is a celebration if it's God's time for him. Turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Back in the 17th century, John Milton wrote a poem called Paradise Lost. And I'm assuming that most of us haven't read it because it's referred to as an epic poem because it originally was published in ten books. But we kind of get the idea of where he's going by his opening words, and they read this way. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden. Milton made the point that paradise was lost in the garden when man rebelled. And we can see the effects of that everywhere we look today. It's obvious that something has gone wrong. There is anger and war and discord in every corner of our world. We know in our hearts that things are not right. It's as if we were designed to fly and we are stuck in a ditch. And there's an inner expectation that we just can't seem to fill. We, we find the sweetheart we've longed for only to find out he's not so sweet. We, we find the job we've always prayed for only to find out after the new has worn off it's just another job. We have the children that we've always dreamed of holding in our arms only to find out they no longer want us to hold them. We finally get the toys and the trinkets that we've always known would bring us happiness only to find out they don't satisfy anymore. What's the problem? Have you ever asked yourself, why am I still longing after all these years of searching and striving for just a little more? Why, when I have so much that I can't even take care of it all, is my heart still singing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Well, our passage today holds the answer to our dilemma because it tells us that the paradise we lost can be found. Only it's not found where man would anticipate. 
It's not found through education. It's not found through technology. It's not found through medical breakthroughs. It's not found in space exploration or stem cell research. It's only found in one place. And that's presented very simply in the middle of verse 9 of chapter 2 where it says, namely, Jesus. The message of the book of Hebrews from beginning to end is the superiority of Jesus Christ. And it's such an important message because when Jesus came as Messiah to fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures, Israel rejected Him. And so this is a letter written to Hebrews to show that it is totally incongruous to accept the Old Testament and then reject the one who fulfills the Old Testament, Jesus Christ. Israel made the unbelievable mistake of accepting all the pictures and the symbols and the shadows and the rituals of the Old Testament and then rejecting the reality when He came. The Old Testament has been referred to by many as the ABCs. It's like in the Old Testament, we learn the alphabet. And then when we come to the New Testament, we find that the letters come together to spell J-E-S-U-S. Jesus said Himself, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. In Isaiah 7.14, we find that He would be born of a virgin. In Micah 5.2, we're told the place of His birth would be Bethlehem. In Isaiah 53, we have a description of His death for us. In Psalm 22, we have a description of His crucifixion. It tells us about the mocking. It tells us that His hands and His feet would be pierced. It tells us that they would cast lots for His clothes. In fact, it gives us the very words that He would utter on the cross. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Throughout the Old Testament, we see the pictures of Christ in the Passover lamb, in the sacrifices, in the brass serpent on the pole. The Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. So much so that in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, when Paul describes the Gospel, he says, it is that Christ died, was buried, and rose again according to the Scriptures. According to which Scriptures? According to the Old Testament Scriptures. And so to accept the Old Testament and to reject Jesus Christ is absurd because you are rejecting the one that the Old Testament points to. And that's the tragic mistake that the people of Jesus' day made. In fact, Jesus said in John 5.39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. They studied the Old Testament Scriptures, but they missed the message because the Old Testament Scriptures point to Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said to the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, they were disappointed and defeated because Jesus had died. And Jesus said, in essence, if you had known the Old Testament, you had, would have known that these things were necessary. And then it says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all 
the Scriptures. To accept the Old Testament Scriptures without accepting Jesus Christ, the central theme of the Old Testament is absurd. To accept and hold to the Old Testament and miss Jesus Christ is to have prophecy without fulfillment. It's to have ritual without reality. It's to have symbol without substance. And I think that probably explains why today so few of the Jews are orthodox. Because having rejected Jesus as Messiah, they are frustrated in finding no fulfillment to the Old Testament promises. And that's why the writer of Hebrews quotes so much from the Old Testament to show the superiority of Jesus Christ. He begins in chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, by telling us that Jesus is better than the angels. And to make his point, he quotes seven Old Testament passages. And then his reasoning becomes clear in the warning we saw last week in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, a warning against drifting by the salvation provided in Christ. He says, if men were judged for disregarding the message brought by angels, how do you expect to escape if you neglect the message brought by Jesus Christ? But at this point, the writer is not finished talking about angels. In fact, he's going to carry that theme through the end of chapter 2. And it seems as if the question arises at this point in time, since Jesus is God and therefore greater than the angels as laid out in chapter 1, then why did he become a man seeing that men are lower than the angels? And what is the answer to that question? Well, if you look at the end of verse 9, we see the simple short answer to that. It says, that or in order that by the grace of God he might taste death for every one. That's the short answer. You, you ask a Christian, why did Jesus become a man? He, he became a man to die for us. But the writer here chooses to give a longer answer to that question because he wants to develop what it was that Jesus becoming a man and dying for us really accomplished. And that unfolds in three points in this passage. I've laid them out in your bulletin. Man's purpose revealed, man's purpose restricted, and man's purpose restored. First of all, we see man's purpose revealed in verses 5 to 8a. Now, one of the popular phrases today is purpose-driven. And, and Rick Warren has written some wonderful books on the purpose-driven church and the purpose-driven life. And it talks about our purpose. But I want to show you that this is a passage from Scripture that really lays out our purpose in life and our destiny for eternity. And I think what you're going to find in this passage is going to be rather, rather startling as you see what God's purpose is for you and me. Notice verse 5. For He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Now that word subject is the Greek, Greek word hupotasso. It means literally to arrange underneath. And it was a word used of military rank or of governmental authority. And so what he's saying here is that the world to come will not be under the authority of angels. They will not be the authorities. They will not be the rulers. 
And the pronoun he in this verse we see from the previous verse 4 is a reference to God. And Romans 13:1 tells us for there is no authority except from God. So God has not given the authority over the world to come to angels. Who will rule over the world to come? Are you ready for this answer? It's men. Now, while you're digesting that, and before I develop that, let's dig into this verse a little more deeply. Now, what is the world to come? Well, that, that Greek word for world is not the word cosmos, which is the common word for this earth. And it's not the word ions, which means ages. That word was used in chapter 1 and verse 2, where it says, through Christ... God made the world, the ions, the ages, the universe. This is a different word. It's the Greek word oikomene, and it means the inhabited earth. So this tells us there is an inhabited earth to come. Now I think here he's not talking about the new heaven and the new earth when he talks about it. He's saying there is an inhabited earth to come. We live in the inhabited earth to go. There is an inhabited earth to come. And I think when he makes this reference, he's talking about the millennial kingdom when God's going to set up his kingdom on this same earth and have a new habitation there set up ruling in that realm. Now he tells us that angels will not be ruling over that world, which implies something. It implies that angels do rule over this world. Who is the top angel? Lucifer. Who is the prince of this world? Satan. So Satan and his angels rule over this world. In fact, in Ephesians 6.12, it calls them rulers and powers and world forces of this darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. And not only do fallen angels or demons rule over this world, but good angels rule as well. Let me show you a passage on that. Turn back to Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel chapter 10, we have some insight into the realm of angels because an angel comes and speaks with Daniel. And if you look at the end of this chapter, Daniel chapter 10 and verse 20, this angel says to Daniel, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. Who's that? It's an angel. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Who's the prince of Greece? It's another angel. Verse 21, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Who is Michael? Michael is the prince of Israel. So you have angels being the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, the prince of Israel. Angels rule and there is a great warfare going on in this world unseen to us amongst God's angels and Satan's demons fighting over the power of this world. But what we're going to find out in the next few verses of Hebrews chapter 2, if you turn back there, 
is that man was originally intended to rule over this world and Satan stole that authority from him. Look at verse 6. But one has testified somewhere saying, and then he quotes from Psalm 8. Now I like this because this is the way I often quote Scripture. The writer just says, somebody somewhere said. You, you ever do that? I know it says that somewhere in the Bible, and we quote it. But I really don't think the writer here has a bad memory because I can't find anywhere in the book of Hebrews where he names the human writer of the Old Testament Scripture. The only one that he attributes the writing of the Old Testament Scriptures to is the Holy Spirit. And I think that explains to us why the writer here doesn't even include his own name in this letter of Hebrews because he wants us to get the human element out of the way. And he wants us to understand that this is the Word of God. And so he quotes from Psalm 8. And what does Psalm 8 say? What is man that thou rememberest him? Now if we go back to Psalm 8, we see that he, he cuts into a psalm that, where David says this, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? In other words, in view of God's creation and the fact that man is just a minute speck in this immense universe, David is awestruck that God would even think about man. And then he goes on to accent that thought in the next phrase in verse 6. He says, Or the Son of Man, that thou art concerned about him. Or I think the King James says that you visitest him. That means to look on him with favor. Now, many commentators, when they see this phrase, Son of Man, think, aha, that's a reference to Christ. But it's not a reference to Christ. In fact, in the Old Testament, we have many references to the Son of Man, and that's a reference to man himself. In fact, let me show you the classic example of that. If you want to go back to Job chapter 25, in Job chapter 25 and verse 4, we read this. How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man that maggot and the son of man that worm? Who is the Son of Man? It's us. And He's called in Job a worm. Throughout Ezekiel's prophecy, He is referred to over and over again as the Son of Man. And so David here is talking about man. He's talking about us. And notice what he says back in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 7. Still quoting from Psalm 8, Thou hast made him, man, for a little while lower than the angels, thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that's some pretty amazing stuff. Speaking about man, he says he has been crowned with glory and honor. He has been appointed over the works of God's hands. He put all things in subjection 
under His feet. That's royal terminology. God's original purpose for man was to be the king of the earth and for everything to be in subjection to Him. In fact, look at the middle of verse 8. The writer gives a commentary after quoting from this psalm. He says, For in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. Now that's a pretty amazing statement to be made about man. And that's what causes David to ask the question, What is man that you would do this for him? What right do we have to be so special in the mind of God? Now, I know some of you are sitting there going, this can't be right. You know, it can't be that we were designed with the purpose of being the king of the earth. Well, if you don't think so, then go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Should be easy to find in your Bible. It's the first chapter. Genesis chapter 1. And verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. Let them rule over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man was created to reign over this earth. Now, come back to Hebrews chapter 2 and notice the first phrase in verse 7 again. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Now that tells us something. It tells us that the original chain of command was God, angels, man, earth. You say, well, how is it that we are lower than the angels? Well, let me say this. It has nothing to do with love. It's not a reference to how much God cares. It's a chain of command. You say, well, how are we lower than the angels? Well, I thought about that, and I'm really not sure. I do know that we are lower than the angels in strength because when we read about angels and what they accomplish in the Bible, they are much more powerful than we are today. Uh, it may have a reference to the fact that they have spiritual bodies, we have physical bodies. I think we can say that we're lower than the angels because at least at this point in time, angels are perfect. The angels fell as a group, but there are not individual angels still sinning and falling out of heaven. God has established them as perfect today. In contrast, when man was put in the garden, he was not put in the garden as perfect. He was put in the garden as innocent with the capacity to sin and man sinned. And I think we also can look at angels and say that angels cannot die. Man can die. And that's why God said to Adam, the day that you eat from the fruit of this tree, you shall surely die. 
Now, what's interesting is that the word little has a temporal meaning. And my translation says, we were made for a little while lower than the angels. Which tells me that God looked on this situation as a temporary arrangement. God knew that our ultimate destiny would be different from the arrangement that He had set up here. That this arrangement of God, angels, man, earth was going to cease. In fact, to show you that, and I'm, I'm using your fingers a lot today, but go back to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. It's described in verses 13 and 14 of, of the kingdom to come. But what I want you to see is in verse 18 of this chapter. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 18. It says, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now, who is it that's going to take the kingdom? Who is it that will rule in the kingdom? Angels? No. It's men. In fact, slide on down in this chapter to verse 27. And notice this verse. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Is that an amazing statement? God has entrusted His ultimate kingdom to man. No wonder David says, what is man? Look at, look at Luke chapter 20 for a moment. Luke chapter 20 and verse 34. I'll give you a little session in angelology. Luke chapter 20 and verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for neither can they die any more, for they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection." In the kingdom, it's going to be a different setup. Man will be like angels in that he will not marry or be given in marriage. We die and go into the kingdom, we will no longer be married. Some of you seem pleased with that, others. And we will not die. We will be like angels. In fact, in the world to come, there's going to be a new chain of command. And that chain of command is going to be God, man, angels, earth. In Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, it says that Christ reigns over all rule and authority and power and dominion. And in Revelation 3, 21, it says that we will sit with Him on His throne. Amazing statement. Talk about your purpose in life. Here is our purpose revealed. To reign as kings over this earth. 
But having revealed that, we find man's purpose restricted at the end of verse 8. Notice the end of verse 8 in Hebrews 2. It says, But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. Man has been established to be king of the earth, but as we look at man today, we don't see a king. We don't see everything subjected to Him. Why not? Well, go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. This is God speaking to Adam after he sinned and establishing the curse in verse 17. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now what happened when Adam sinned? Well, he immediately lost his crown. And so even though we were originally intended to rule this world, it's not happening. In fact, the truth is, this earth is ruling us with thorns and thistles and weeds. I can't even rule over my yard. It just keeps growing weeds, and I'm in this battle constantly trying to get a good-looking yard so the neighbors aren't sort of looking at me the way they look at me. And rather than being kings of this world, we today find ourselves as slaves of sin. And Satan has usurped our crown. 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. And the Bible tells us that even the earth knows that man has lost his dominion. You want, you want to see that? Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 19. Romans 8, verse 19 says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. This whole creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, ready for us to realize our destiny in the kingdom and for the creation to be free from the curse that came because of man's sin. That will be an exciting day when the kingdom comes. Hospitals will be closed. Doctors will go out of business. Wars will cease. Wild animals will be tamed. There will be no zoos. Weeds will be gone. We will have no mosquitoes. And the dominion that man lost will be reinstated. Which brings us to the last point. Man's purpose restored. And we see that in verse 9. It says, But we do see Him 
who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for every one. The end of verse 8 says, we don't see all things subjected to man. But verse 9 says, but we do see Jesus, and he is crowned with glory and honor. Christ became a man lower than the angels so that he might suffer and die for us. You see, the only way that I can become a king is for the curse to be removed. And the only way that the curse can be removed is for me to pay the price for the curse. And what is that price? Death. And how is that problem solved? Well, Romans chapter 6 tells us that when Christ died, I died. You say, well, you don't look dead. Well, I am dead. I'm dead the same way Paul was dead when he said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Romans 6 says, when Christ died, I died. When Christ was buried, I was buried. When Christ rose, I rose. And Ephesians 2.6 goes a step further and says, we were raised up with Christ and we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. You see, I stand before you today as a king. I am a king much like Prince Charles is. See, I haven't inherited my dominion yet, but I'm certainly patient. How is my destiny restored? Well, because Jesus became a man, He could die in my place. And because Jesus is God, death could not hold Him. He conquered death. And by my identification with Jesus Christ through faith, I died, I was buried, I rose, and I am now seated with Him on His throne. And I am no longer under the authority of angels. In fact, Hebrews 1.14 tells us that they now render service to me. And my future is royal. In fact, look at Revelation chapter 5. You can leave Hebrews. Go to Revelation chapter 5. Verse 9. It says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And notice, they will reign upon the earth. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 1. It says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss. Now, there we have the old king deposed. What happens next in verse 4? And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. Thrones, plural. Who's that? That's us. You know, in Revelation 19, 16, when Jesus is called the King 
of kings. You know who the kings are? They are us. He is the king of all kings, but we will reign with him. And that is an amazing destiny that God has laid out for us. You say, well, why would God do this for us? Well, the answer is found in Hebrews 2.9 in the little phrase where it says, by the grace of God. The only answer that we have into why God would send His Son into this world to die in our place, to, re to bring us back to the destiny He intended for us, in fact, a greater destiny than He originally intended for us, is by the grace of God because He loves you so much. He did it to recover your lost destiny. And so if you're here today and you're still groping around trying to figure out why you exist, now you know. You were created to reign, but sin has made you a pauper. Sin has imprisoned you. But I have good news today, and that is that Jesus Christ can set you free. He can set you free to reign in life, as it says in Romans 5.17. Reign in life now over sin and to reign over the world to come. Paradise was lost in the garden, but it's found at the cross in Jesus Christ. And if you have never come and surrendered your life to Him and found your purpose in life in Jesus Christ, then I invite you to come to know Him today. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back and, and I'm going to change songs on them because I feel more like celebrating. We're going to do the days of Elijah and celebrate the fact that the king is coming back and our purpose... You guys have to stand up. Okay. And, and move up here to the center and turn toward the audience. And I'd like to introduce to you Jeremy and Cher Colleen. Did I do it right? All right. And this is their two-year-old daughter, Gracie. And they have come this morning to join our fellowship. And so if you would, Bjorn, would you mind leading them out to the lobby and then afterwards be sure and, and meet and greet, greet these folks. Uh, I do have an announcement on, on a youth trip update. Everything is going better than expected. Uh, our students are attending services this morning at Lawndale Community Church and Lavalita Community Church. Both are inner city churches and they plan to give a full report next Sunday. And for the parents, uh, I'm to tell you that your kids are fine and they will be calling you today. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word today. And as we consider a passage like this, it, it almost seems inconceivable and, and a bit arrogant to be saying that our purpose is to reign as kings. And yet that's what you've told us and that's what you've put in your plan. And Lord, we want to remember that it's all by your grace that we are anything. And Lord, we will spend eternity asking along with David, what is man that you would do this for us? And Lord, help us today to rejoice in Jesus Christ 
and the grace provided to us, the free gift offered to us in Him. And Lord, we will spend our lives and our eternity being grateful and bowing down in worship to the King of Kings. We exalt His name today. Amen.